This program is brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu. My name is uh, Christopher Gibson. I'm a professor of law and an assistant dean at uh, Suffolk University Law School. I teach in areas such as internet law, international business transactions, and also international dispute resolution. My background in international dispute resolution stems from a number of different positions I held before coming to Suffolk, one of which was working with the World Intellectual Property Organization, or WIPO, in their Arbitration and Mediation Center. While I was at WIPO, one of the things that I did, my principal job, was actually to design a new international dispute resolution system to address a problem that was created with the onset of the Internet, and that was conflict between trademarks and domain names. If you think back just a little over 10 years ago, Starting perhaps about 1995, domain names were something that was brand new. Using a domain name as a URL in order to go to a website, domain names collapsed two different functions into one. They were a address mechanism, just like a phone number, something that allowed you to go to a website, but they were also easy to remember, such as Ford.com or Microsoft.com or Suffolk.edu. By putting the domain name and using it as essentially a phone number for the internet, you found a very powerful device that allowed users to use these new labels in a mnemonically easy way Something easy to remember, in other words, so that you could go to virtually any website if you could just retain the name. So they took on a branding or trademark function, and what happened is a lot of third parties, particularly those who were savvy about the Internet, started registering popular names, popular brands, popular words. Some of those names or brands corresponded to well-established trademarks, and so you would have a conflict or a dispute between the person that has registered the domain name on the one hand and a trademark owner, someone who had perhaps already registered a trademark or owned a trademark, something that is registered usually by a country in that country's intellectual property office. So you had conflict between trademark rights and the system for registering domain names. While I was at WIPO, I designed an international dispute resolution system to address this issue of conflicts between trademarks and domain names. That particular system became known as the Uniform Domain Name Dispute Resolution Policy, or now people refer to it as the UDRP. It's a very simple system to address conflicts, uh, disputes, that is, between trademark owners who believe that some third party out there in the world has registered a domain name that is essentially covered by the trademark owner's rights. So that's a little bit of background on my role in WIPO and how come I know so much about these domain name disputes. Now I am a panelist, meaning an arbitrator who actually decides cases involving disputes between trademark owners who are essentially in the position of the plaintiff. They bring the claims and they allege that some domain name holder out there in the world has registered a domain name and that it violates the criteria of that UDRP procedure that I just mentioned. The case that I chose was one in which I actually decided. It was a case brought by the well-known yogurt company, Dannon. Dannon Yogurt, which is essentially a French company, and they brought a claim against a party that was located in India. It's called Sequential Inc. The domain name that had been registered by the Indian entity is ActiviaChallenge.com. Now, if you ever eat yogurt, you might notice on your grocery shelves that Activia is a very popular 
brand of yogurt, and Activia itself is a brand and a trademark owned by the Dannon Company. They use it to market a particular type of yogurt that they have, which has certain healthy properties. It has lots of probiotic bacteria and so forth, and they actually head up program that they called the Activia Challenge program where they said if you eat this yogurt for seven days you will feel like your stomach is settled better and you're much more comfortable. So they and then they found that someone had actually registered the domain name ActiviaChallenge.com and the word challenge had only one L in the domain name as opposed to two which would be the correct spelling in the English language. As I said before, this domain name was actually registered by a party in India. So all of a sudden you have a problem. You have a French company who has registered the trademark Activia, and they've registered it in Europe, and they've registered it in the United States, and then and they've registered it in countries like China and in many countries around the world. Yet you have a party in India that was able to go to a website and register ActiviaChallenge.com through an automated process using a website. So that's the background of this particular dispute. I decided the case involving the dispute brought by Dannon on behalf of its trademark brand, Activia, against the Indian party who had registered ActiviaChallenge.com. In this case, the domain name holder didn't just register Activia, which is the actual part that's protected by the trademark, Activia, so for example, if you go to Activia.com, Activia, that would be a website that is actually operated by Dan and Yogurt. And in that particular case, this domain name holder added the word challenge, misspelled, but did add the second word, a generic word challenge, which is descriptive of activity. In fact, it's descriptive of a program that Dan and Yogurt had actually launched. But what we would say in trademark law is that the distinctive part of the domain name is the part that is corresponding to the trademark. Activia, for example, is a fictitious word. It doesn't exist in the English language, at least. And so what someone has done, a third party out there in the world has done, in this case someone from India, registered that word Activia with the second word immediately next to it, challenge. And the distinctive part is the part that is that fictitious word. It's distinctive because Dannon has actually advertised its trademark Activia, not only in the United States, but throughout Europe and in countries in Asia, such as China. So there are many consumers who would recognize the Activia brand. And to add the word challenge does not necessarily lessen the confusion. So, for example, if you see the domain name Activia Challenge, you might expect that that is somehow a domain name and the, that corresponds to or is sponsored or authorized by Dan and Yogurt. Once again, domain names are always connected to websites. So if you saw the URL www.activiachallenge.com and you went to the corresponding website, you might think that is a website operated by Dan and Yogurt. The URL always contains the domain name and a top-level part called, let's say, .com. It could be .info, it could be .edu for educational institutions. And it usually has the prefix www, which refers to the World Wide Web. As I said previously, the URL, which containing that domain name, is actually like a telephone number. It is an easy-to-remember label that allows you to find websites out there. And what many parties have done is realizing the power of the domain name, they register domain names corresponding to generic or popular words, which is fine, or also sometimes corresponding to trademarks owned by trademark owners. And so that label is in fact the type of mechanism now, because of its 
a powerful addressing feature and also its branding feature that is very vulnerable to this type of activity where third parties register words that correspond or are protected by trademarks. There's now even a new term for this which has existed over the last 10 years or so. They call that behavior cyber squatting, the idea that you register a word that is covered by someone's trademark. And if you do so, and if you violate the criteria of the UDRP, then you might be found to have registered that domain name in bad faith. Let me just go over the three criteria of the UDRP. This is an international procedure, and it was designed intentionally to be international, meaning just as in this case you have a dispute essentially between a French company on the one hand and an Indian party that has registered a domain name. If you did not have this procedure, think about it. Where would you go to resolve this conflict? Would you go to courts in India? Would you go to courts in France? Would you go to courts in the United States? With the UDRP, everything can take place online. The actual dispute policy is an online dispute resolution policy. And what the complainant or the plaintiff has to prove, that would be Dan in in this case, they have to prove that the domain name that was registered by the Indian party, activiachallenge.com, that it is identical or confusingly similar to the complainant's trademark. Secondly, they have to prove that that domain name registrant has no rights or legitimate interests in the domain name. And third, they have to show that the domain name was registered and is being used in bad faith. So in this case, which I decided in favor of Dan and Yogurt, I found, first of all, that Dannon does hold a trademark for the word Activia, the fictitious word. They actually have registered trademark rights in Europe, in the United States, in China, in other countries. So they've protected their Activia brand through trademark rights virtually around the world. Secondly, I found that Activia Challenge was confusingly similar to their trademark Activia. It wasn't identical to their trademark, particularly because, as I said before, Activia has actually run a program called Activia Challenge, where they say if you buy our yogurt and eat it for 7 to 10 days in a row, your stomach will work better, you'll digest food better, that sort of thing. Now, the second criteria is that you have to show that the domain name holder, this would be the Indian company, has no rights or legitimate interests in the domain name. In other words, they have no trademark rights themselves. They're not um, named by that. If that was their personal name, then they would have a right in it. That they haven't been using it for legitimate non-commercial purposes or for some other educational purpose. In this case, the domain name, activiachallenge.com, was actually connected to what we call a landing page. The website had links on it, and if you clicked on those links, the owner of the domain name would get paid small fees. So if you went to the activiachallenge.com website, you would see a bunch of links to other websites. And simply by clicking through on one of those links, the holder of the domain name gets paid a little bit for that. The third criteria is we have to show that the domain was registered and is being used in bad faith. Here, what the claimant had shown was that they had protected rights in the Activia trademark around the world and that they had achieved well-known status for that mark, Activia, in Asia, in the United States, in Europe. And therefore, they were able to imply that this domain name holder registered the words ActiviaChallenge.com with knowledge of their trademarks and that, in effect, the domain name holder actually targeted Activia. The activity of the, that the domain name was associated with actually supports that conclusion. The fact that they connected Activia Challenge to a landing page website with links to other websites related to yogurt and other dairy products 
really supports the conclusion that this domain name holder registered that domain name while targeting Dan and Yogurt and its Activia brand. And therefore, what I found in this case was that the claimant here, which was the Dan and Yogurt company, was successful in showing that the domain name holder had actually registered the domain name in bad faith. And therefore, we found in favor, I found as a panelist in this particular case, in favor of Dan and Yogurt. In about 50 to 60% of the cases I've decided, the respondent has not put in any response. That number is going down, meaning now more of the cases that I get appointed to decide under the UDRP. In fact, there is a respondent that responds. I think... The reason is that uh, parties today are becoming aware of this UDRP procedure. And in cases where someone ha- like this case involving Dan and Yogurt and the Activia trademark, where someone has essentially targeted the trademark owner's brand, then it's a very clear-cut case. And it's very clear that someone was opportunistic in registering that domain name. And therefore, they didn't show up. They didn't want to contest it. They probably were trying to make some money until such time as the website was taken down through this UDRP procedure. And therefore, we do find some cases in the early years. This procedure was adopted in 1999 when I was still working at WIPO. The first case was decided in January of 2001. And since that time, there have been over 20,000 decisions. I myself have probably decided about 60 to 75 cases after I left WIPO, not while I was on the staff. And um, in the early years, there were many cases where the respondent did not appear because it was so clear they were trying to take advantage of the trademark of some trademark owner, and therefore they didn't uh, contest it. Nowadays, however, there are many more respondents that put in responses because there are often cases that are much more difficult to solve. For example, where the domain name holder is a licensee of the trademark owner or a local distributor of the trademark owner's brand. Those are cases that are much more difficult, and the respondent will often say, I have some rights or legitimate interest in using this particular domain name and containing that trademark because I'm distributing the complainant's uh, products, for example. Those cases are not appropriate cases for the UDRP, which was supposed to be confined only to cases involving bad faith registrations, not cases that have highly contested facts. Are there any punitive aspects to this UDRP procedure other than losing the domain name? When we drafted this procedure, we intentionally confined the remedy under the procedure to be the status of the domain name itself. In other words, whether the domain name would be transferred from one party to another or not. There's no monetary relief under this policy. Nobody can sue for damages. A trademark owner cannot sue the domain name holder for damages. All they can do is seek to obtain the transfer of the domain name to themselves, which in and of itself can be an important thing. Obviously, if it's a key name or brand, what they cannot do, though, is bring a claim for damages. We found that since it's an international procedure that we had designed when I was at WIPO, we could not tackle easily the enforcement problems that would be associated with allowing damages to be claimed under this procedure. The remarkable thing about this procedure is that it is truly international. Anyone can participate it from to hire local uh, foreign lawyers in order to do so. The criteria under the UDRP are international criteria, which are posted on the Internet, and everyone can read them and understand them. And all of the parties that are involved in the system of registering domain names 
are accredited through a central body called the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers. Nowadays, we just call that entity, we call it ICANN, I-C-A-N, and it's known as ICANN, um, not by the long name. In order to maintain your status as a registrar, a company that is entitled to register domain names, you have to agree that you will abide by the outcomes of decisions under this UDRP procedure. And therefore, the actual decisions on whether a domain name should be transferred from a domain name holder to a trademark owner or whether it should remain with the domain name holder are enforceable because the companies that are involved in registering domain names are, have agreed to enforce these decisions as a condition of their accreditation within the domain name system operated by ICANN. And so therefore we have an internationally enforceable procedure that does not include any form of damages. It is focused solely on the status of the domain name as between the two parties in the dispute. One thing that we built into this procedure was a, what is called reverse domain name hijacking. In other words, could it be that a trademark owner would bring a claim against a domain name holder in bad faith, essentially trying to be abusive in bringing claims to threaten those who might be um, using domain names and having registered them in a legitimate matter? So there is a possibility that a panelist such as myself could find that the trademark owner brought the case in bad faith in a sense, um, was trying to hijack the domain name by bringing a claim against the domain name holder. I would say that those cases are not frequent, but there are several of them under the procedure. I have, as I said, decided probably more than 70 cases under the UDRP. And of those, I would say probably 70% of those have gone in favor of the domain of the trademark owner and 30% in favor of the domain name holder. I've only found on, I believe, two occasions, a case in which the trademark owner brought the case in an abusive manner without any right to have done so. And therefore, I, I made a finding of reverse domain name hijacking. In other areas of the law, I should say this. It's always available to a trademark owner to be able to bring a case of trademark infringement in a court in the relevant country. For example, in a case involving a dispute between a trademark owner like Dannon and an Indian company, Dannon could have chosen to sue the Indian company in Indian courts um, under the laws of India, under the trademark laws of India. Alternatively, perhaps Dannon would have tried to sue them in France, where it's located, or in the United States, where it has trademark protection. If it had brought a case in the court, it would face issues of personal jurisdiction, establishing personal jurisdiction over that Indian company. And secondly, though, it could have brought claims for damages, actual monetary damages, not just seeking to obtain the domain name from the other party. So there's a set of procedures in the courts that are always available to parties, but what has been remarkable is to see that many of the trademark owners have chosen the UDRP as the dispute resolution policy of choice. It's cheaper, it's faster, and it gets them what they want, which is um, if they have rights to a domain name, then they're able to get it uh, through a transfer procedure much faster than if they went to a court of law. Well, thank you for listening today. In conclusion, I should mention that you can find the supporting materials for this podcast, my decision in the domain name dispute involving Activia Challenge, and uh, the UDRP policy included in the relevant intellectual property section of Suffix iTunes series. So I hope you find those materials to be helpful.
This preceding program was brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu.